Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that's provided for you in the chair there, uh, you'll find our passage on page 957 and 958. 957, 958. For those of you who are our guests this morning, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we have been going through a series in 1 Corinthians And this morning, uh, we come to these verses here in chapter 10, verses 14 uh, to 22. So I'm going to read them uh, for us, and then we'll pray, and we'll consider God's word together. Verse 14, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we do thank you and praise you for the oneness that we have in Christ. And Father, as we consider that this morning, as we look to your word and as we take the Lord's Supper together, Father, we pray that our hearts and our allegiances would be fully devoted to and given to Christ. Lord, make our hearts yours by your grace. Help us in this time as we turn to your word. Give us understanding and wisdom and insight and change us for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the biggest obstacles of modern people embracing the Christian faith is the exclusive claims of Jesus. Jesus said, and many of y'all are familiar with this passage, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the exclusivity of Christ claims that Jesus is the only way that we can know God and have everlasting life, that Jesus is the only final and absolute standard for truth, and that Jesus is the only means through which we can have a relationship with God. Now, no doubt, this is a remarkable claim. Jesus is exclusive in the sense of His ability to save and in the sense of His lordship and His rule and His reign. It is a remarkable claim. And many have chosen to reject the exclusivity of Christ in favor of religious pluralism. Now, if you mean by religious pluralism, 
that the different religions of the world should coexist in a peaceful way in society, then absolutely yes. In fact, the Christian worldview affirms that and provides a theological framework in which to support that type of society where we can coexist with other religions and honor our freedom and ability to worship as we choose. But there's another definition or understanding of religious pluralism that goes a step further that says not only should the different religions of the world coexist in a peaceful society, but all the different faiths and religions of the world are equally valid and equally true. And so the idea is that, yes, Jesus is one way to know God and experience eternal life, but we as modern people have come to understand and see that there are many other ways as well. So you could arrive at the same place, you could experience the same type of spiritual life, you could experience the same type of spiritual blessings if you worshipped Allah or Vishnu or followed the teachings of Buddha. It's all in the end the same. And oftentimes the assumption is that this is the only enlightened, reasonable position that a modern man or woman could take. Now, if you're here this morning and that describes you, I'm really glad you're here, first of all. I'm really glad you're here. If you've been struggling with this, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But as you think about this position of religious pluralism, you may have assumed that this is a modern solution to an ancient problem of different primitive religions warring against one another. And if that's your assumption, you may be surprised to find out that Paul was actually 2,000 years ago speaking into the same type of religious context in which we find ourselves today. A context that was marked by religious pluralism. You see, the idea of exclusivity was foreign to ancient paganism. In fact, it was expected in cities like Corinth that Paul was writing to or in the larger Roman Empire that folks would worship multiple gods and would visit multiple temples. The idea was that there are so many different gods that it's good to cover all your bases. I mean, two gods is surely better than one, right? Three gods is better than two. Ten gods is better than three. You get the idea, right? There's safety in numbers. That was the approach to religion and to worship. There's safety in numbers. And so the more gods that you can curry favor from, the more opportunity you have to be successful in life. And Paul comes into that very context and he proclaims this message that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is King. And the temptation for the Corinthians now, Paul is writing to the the church in Corinth, the, the temptation for these new Christians in Corinth is, yes, Paul, I believe that, and I've embraced this message that Jesus is Lord, but you know, as I've been thinking about this thing a little bit more, I think I will continue to attend the temple that I've attended all my life growing up, and I'll participate in the religious festivals and I'll participate in the religious feasts because that's what my family and that's what my friends do. But don't worry, Paul, because I'll worship Jesus too. 
And Paul here in our passage this morning in the larger section of chapters 8 through 10 categorically rejects that as idolatry. And Paul teaches us here in this passage and what we see from this passage is that religious pluralism is not the invention of modern man to solve an ancient problem. Rather, religious pluralism is an ancient concept that Paul rejected as idolatry and in response proclaimed the exclusivity of Christ for all times and all ages. And so I'd ask you, my friends, this morning, do you believe Jesus' words when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him? If you don't believe that, do you know why? And do you know what implications that might have for your soul? If you do believe it, do you know why? And can you give a defense and a rationale for why you believe it? Listen, there is much that we could say on this topic, but what I want us to see from these few verses this morning is Paul is speaking into this particular context and addressing this issue. What I want us to see here from Paul's words is that the exclusivity of Christ The idea that Jesus is the only Lord, the only Savior, the exclusivity of Christ is consistent with reason and it is consistent with the character of God. With that in mind, let's look at our first point this morning. The exclusivity of Christ is consistent with reason. Now we see this in verses 14 to 21 of our passage. And as I mentioned earlier, in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing this matter of meat sacrificed to idols. And the question here that's being addressed is that the Corinthians, as new Christians, were they free to worship Jesus on the one hand, and then on the other hand to attend the temple of pagan gods and participate in their feast? And you see Paul's response to that question in verse 14 of our text. Paul clearly states there in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. But notice that Paul doesn't just leave it there. He states this command in verse 14, flee from idolatry. But then in verse 15, Paul writes, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So notice what Paul does here. He lays out a command for the people in Corinth. But then he appeals right after that, he appeals to their reason. He appeals to their minds. He appeals to their sensibility. You know, some people today say, I reject the Christian faith because in order to be a Christian, you just have to kind of take a leap in the dark. It's just blind faith. You just have to kind of mentally check out and accept whatever's stated. And that's what Christianity, I just can't make a leap like that. But what we see in this passage here is that that's not the case at all. That Paul is not looking for just blind allegiance. But Paul is actually looking for them to come to the church in Corinth, to come to a true understanding that would result in personal conviction and a personal embrace of reality. Paul is calling them. He's calling them to reason with him. And the basic argument that then Paul goes on to make as he calls them to reason with him is that allegiance to Christ and allegiance to idols is incompatible. That the two are diametrically opposed to one another. That they can't come together and they can't coexist. And that to, to try to do so is in fact inconsistent and incoherent. 
Paul actually uses seven questions in these verses, and each one of these questions is intended to provoke the Corinthians to think, to reason, to to question these things, and to come to their own conclusion. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to know is that these things are, are diametrically opposed to one another, like oil is to water, or like Superman and kryptonite, right? Or like the dark side and the force, or like orange juice and toothpaste. The two don't go together, and they cannot coexist. And that's the argument that Paul is making here, and he wants to impress upon the church in Corinth. Now, in order to do that, Paul contrasts two meals, right? So so the big deal is here, can we go to the temple, and can we participate in these meals at the temple that are eaten in honor of pagan gods? And so Paul contrasts those meals with the meal of Jesus. And what is the meal of Jesus? It's the Lord's Supper. It's when Christians gather together to eat and to drink. To eat the bread, which is representative of the broken body of Christ. And to drink the cup, which is representative of the shed blood of Jesus. You see there in our verses that Paul uses that word participation. It's translated in the English Standard Version, which I'm using here. It's the, the word uh, koinonia is the original word in the Greek. It's used actually four times in these few verses here. It's often translated fellowship, and it means to share with someone in something. To share with someone in something. And what Paul wants to impress upon us this morning is that when Christians gather together to take the Lord's Supper, like we will be doing in a few moments here this morning, there is a significant fellowship, there's a significant communion, participation that takes place. When we take of the Lord's Supper, first of all, Paul says that when we participate in this meal, there is a fellowship that takes place with Christ. A fellowship that takes place with Christ. Look there in verse 16 of our passage and Paul writes these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And so what Paul is saying here is that when when a Christian takes the cup and we, we drink the cup, something's happening in that moment. It is representative of the Christian expressing their faith their confidence, their trust in the shed blood of Jesus as the only hope for the forgiveness of our sins. As we take the cup, we are expressing that Jesus has shed His blood. He's died in our place, on our behalf, died our death because of the sin and the judgment and the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and have a restored relationship with God. It is an expression of our personal faith in Jesus. And this fellowship and this communion is is all the more precious because this relationship that is represented as we take communion, this relationship that we have with God was purchased with the very blood and life of Christ. Not only when we take the Lord's Supper is there participation and fellowship with Christ, but then Paul goes on to say that in the meal it Uh, represents a fellowship with one another, with fellow believers. So you see this there in verse 17. Paul says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now you you have to follow Paul carefully here, because actually Paul uses two metaphors here in this one verse. Uh, The first one he uses is the metaphor of bread. 
And, and bread in this context is representative of Christ's physical body that was broken at the cross for our redemption. So that's the bread. But then Paul uses another metaphor. He uses Christ's body. And in the Bible, what we see is that Christ's body is used as a metaphor for the church, for God's people. The idea is that Christ is the head. And so he's the lead. He's the Lord. And that his body is the church, that we are uh, his people. We are his body. And so as we are his body, we are to follow his lead. As he is the head, we are to be a reflection in our words and our actions and all that we do of who he is and where he's leading us and guiding us and directing us. And so in verse 17, Paul is essentially saying, listen, as Christ's body, as the people of God, we are all sustained by the one same spiritual food. Namely, the bread, the broken body of Christ that was broken at the cross for our redemption and salvation. And when we gather together as one body and we partake of the one bread, we confess together that this broken body, the broken body of Christ, is our only hope for spiritual life and nourishment and sustenance. We confess a similar faith a like hope, and we are joined together in fellowship and communion with one another in Christ. So this is what the meal represents. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread, when we take the cup, this is what is represented. Fellowship, participation, communion, relationship with God in Christ and with one another. But then in verses 18 to 21... You see that then Paul contrasts the Lord's Supper with the Feast of Idols. And he begins there in verse 18 with an Old Testament example. So look there in verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Now, of course, here Paul is actually picking up on an example that he used last week that we looked at in verses 1 through 13. And he appealed to this uh, in the verses there where the Israelites, after being redeemed from Egyptian slavery, went into the wilderness. They were making their way to the promised land. And not very long after being delivered from Egyptian slavery, miraculously, by God's power and grace, they began to worship other gods. They erected for themselves a golden calf, and they began to give themselves in worship to this false god. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 7, just a few verses earlier, Paul describes what took place there. And he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, as the people made this golden calf and they gave themselves in worship to this idol, they were feasting, they were eating, they were drinking, they were getting intoxicated, they were giving themselves to sexual immorality. In other words, they were fellowshipping with, they were communing with, in meal and in sexual intimacy, they were giving themselves over to this foreign god. So there's a communion, there's a participation, there's a fellowship that takes place in the worship of these pagan gods. But notice then, and this is interesting, in the next verse that Paul makes a clarification. In reality, Paul says that their fellowship and their participation with these other gods is not like well, you have Jesus who is one God here, and if you were to talk about Corinth, you have Aphrodite who is another God here, and you can just choose between these two gods. Or there's many other gods that you could choose between to worship, to have fellowship with, to commune with. No, Paul says it's actually not like that at all. 
In fact, there's only one God. It's the one true and living God of the Bible, and His Son is Jesus Christ. And all these other deities are false gods. They're no gods at all. In fact, they're just representations of demonic forces. In fact, if you go back to chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, this is where Paul begins to make this argument. Just flip back maybe a page. In chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, notice what Paul says there. He rejects the existence of false gods in these verses. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and from whom, uh, I'm sorry, the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there in chapter 8, Paul says, listen, these gods that they're worshiping, there's no such thing as these gods. They don't even exist. Now you come over into chapter 10 and he says, but when they worship these gods, they're fellowshipping, they're participating with, they're communing with demons. So the question is, well, Paul, what, what is it? Is there something behind these idols or is there not? And, and notice the distinction that Paul makes back in chapter 10, our verses that we're looking at. Notice the distinction that Paul makes in verses 19 to 20. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? That they're gods, you might say? No. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. You see the distinction there. Paul says these idols are not gods. They're not even worthy of the title. There's only one God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But that does not mean, that does not mean that they don't represent any spiritual power or force. In fact, they are a reflection of demonic powers, demonic forces that are deceiving people into participating in false worship. As Paul lays these two meals beside each other, Christ, the meal where you participate and commune with Christ, and a meal where you are led astray by demons to worship false God, Paul says, listen, these two things are absolutely incompatible. There's no way that these two things can coexist. And if you just look at the moral code of, uh, that, that both of these meals represent, it's so obvious. I mean, these, these, these pagan gods, oftentimes in the worship of these pagan gods, they called for gluttony and drunkenness and to engage in sexual immorality and orgies. And sometimes these gods required sacrifices. Human sacrifices would be made to them, even child sacrifice absolutely diametrically opposed to the way of Christ, Paul says. These two things cannot exist. And you see, here's the problem. And, and, and this, gets to, this gets to modern day, okay? Here's the problem. When the Corinthians looked at these two meals, the meals that took place in pagan temples and the meal of Jesus, when they looked at these two meals, the problem was they only saw similarities. When you come to the Lord's table, there's a cup and you drink it. Come to a pagan feast, there's a cup and you drink it. When you come to the Lord's table, there's a meal and you eat it. When you come to a pagan temple and there's a, there's a feast there, in honor of a pagan god, you eat it. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that in terms of similarities, that's essentially where the similarities end. 
because everything else is radically, diametrically opposed to one another. These meals represent different deities, different belief systems, different moralities, different ethics. And they cannot be reconciled. You know, people make the same mistake today. One common expression of this is that you will hear people say, and, and I believe and trust oftentimes with good intentions. Well, you know, Jews and Muslims and Christians all worship the same God. The, the, these are, these are religion, these are all three monotheistic religions. These are the great monotheistic religions of the world. All three religions profess that there is only one God. They must all worship the same God. And see, there's a focus on, and there's, there's, there's a, a, a focus on and a centrality on what is similar. But like Paul, if we were to hear something like that, we should say, as Paul says to the Corinthians here, I speak to you as sensible people. I speak to you as people who, who have faculties to reason and to think. Let's give this consideration. Let's pry a little bit more. Let's push a little bit deeper. Let us reason together. Yes, all three monotheistic religions affirm and, and say they worship one God. But they are not nearly as similar as you might think. In fact, let's just take the example of the person of Jesus and the way of salvation. You think about Jews, and Jews would say that Jesus is not the Messiah, and to claim that He is is blasphemous. And the way of salvation is by honoring and keeping the law, the law of God. On the other hand, you have Muslims. And Muslims would say that Jesus is not the Son of God, that He was only a prophet, but He wasn't the greatest prophet, that in fact, Muhammad came after Him. And He was a greater prophet than Jesus. And that as far as salvation, Jesus did not die on the cross for people's sins. Judas actually died in Jesus' place. So when you see someone dying on the cross there, it wasn't Jesus, it was Judas. And if you really want to have salvation and you want to know Allah and you want to experience paradise and everlasting life, then you need to do more good things than you do bad things in your life. Christianity, on the other hand, says that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus was the Son of the living God. You remember the confession that Peter made to Jesus? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that to reject Him as the Son of the living God is blasphemous. It's to deny Him. It's to deny God. And Christianity teaches that the only way of salvation is not by keeping the law. It's not by doing more good than bad because we could never do enough to earn salvation to make ourselves right before God, but that Jesus came and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins in our place so that through faith in him, we could have eternal life. And listen, my friends, these are not minor differences. These are not just things on the periphery. These are essential things that go right to the heart of who God is and who Jesus is and how we can know God and have eternal life. 
And then for those who would broaden the scope and say, well, let's include other religions as well. We're all on the same path. We're all headed the same way. So let's include Buddhism and Hinduism. Then my friends, listen, at that point, the differences and the irreconcilable contradictions just multiply. Again, just a quick example. In Christianity, the Bible teaches that God created all things and that He is a personal God who desires a personal relationship with us. Buddhism teaches that there is no personal God. Hinduism teaches that there are literally billions of gods. These things cannot be reconciled. These are not just small or minor differences. But they are diametrically opposed to one another. And you know, the irony is that the folks who advocate for religious pluralism oftentimes present themselves as the intellectually enlightened and sophisticated who have remedied the primitive nature of Christianity. But that's just so far from the truth. Because actually, as you press into this position, as you press into religious pluralism, even a little bit, what you see is that in order to embrace this philosophy, this idea of the world, this idea of how to know God, you have to commit intellectual suicide. It is intellectually impossible to embrace such a position consistently. And therefore, we need to understand the call of Jesus. That when Jesus calls us to believe in Him, when Jesus calls us to trust in Him, He is not offering Himself as one God among many. He is not offering Himself as one choice among many valid options. But Jesus declares with boldness, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And faith in Him, to trust in Him, to say you're my Lord, to say you're my Savior, to participate in His meal, to take the bread and to take the cup, is to preclude trust in and worship of any other deity. He alone, He alone is God. So Paul shows the Corinthians and he shows us this morning from these verses that the exclusivity of Christ is consistent with reason. But not only that, and we won't spend nearly as much time on this point, the exclusivity of Christ is consistent with the character of God. Look there in verse 22, just one verse, and he writes these words. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, the exclusive claims of Christ, not only are, is it a matter of re- reason, not only is it consistent with reason to say that you, you can't worship Christ and worship other gods as well, but it is a matter of affection. It's a matter of affection. You know, it's no accident that when God saved Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery, that after that, the first two commandments that he gave them, right, he gave them the Ten Commandments, And the first two commandments that he gave gave them prohibited idolatry. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, we read there, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I redeemed you, I saved you, I made you my own. 
Here's the implication. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And here's the reason why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The prohibition against idolatry is rooted and grounded in the character of God. Idolatry is not just wrong because it's a matter of reason, because it's inconsistent to worship idols and to worship Christ. But for Christians, it's not just a matter that it doesn't make sense. It's not just that it's logically incoherent or inconsistent, which it is, but it is a matter of affection. God loves us. God wants a relationship with us. And God wants our hearts. God wants our wholehearted devotion, love, and affection. And listen, my friends, when it says here, when Paul says it here, and and it's repeated over and over again in Old Testament passages of Scripture, just like I read, when it says that God is jealous, understand that His jealousy is not like the petty, immature jealousy of a high school boyfriend or girlfriend. The jealousy of God is like the strong, mature, honorable jealousy of a husband who discovers that his wife is committing adultery and he insists that that relationship, adulterous relationship, must end because it is inconsistent with their love and the covenant of marriage. And that type of jealousy is glorious and it is honorable. And what the Bible teaches us is that God is, He has come to wed Himself to us. He loves us. He, he wants our hearts. He wants our full-hearted devotion. And He is a jealous God. In fact, the Scriptures oftentimes liken worship to sexual intimacy. So worship is no small matter. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talked to us about How we as Christians should not give ourselves to sexual immorality. And you remember how Paul talked about it? Paul says, don't don't give yourself. Christians should not give themselves to engage with prostitutes. Because when you do so, you're not just involved in a physical act, but you're giving something of yourself over. There's an emotional and relational, even spiritual connection that takes place. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't give yourself to prostitutes. Don't give yourself to sexual immorality. But he, and, and so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul was teaching us that there is no such thing as casual sex. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul teaches us there's no such thing as casual worship. There's no such thing as just casually being present when other gods are worshipped. Casually giving yourself to other gods. Casually investing in feasts and festivals that honor and worship other gods. There's nothing casual about it. And God is not interested in hooking up. God is not interested in an open relationship. God is interested in absolute faithfulness and fidelity. He wants our hearts and He wants all of us. He is a jealous God. As Paul goes on to tell us here in this verse, anything else, anything else but our wholehearted devotion results in His just wrath. You see it there in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then he writes these words. Are we stronger than he? 
And no doubt that is a warning. It's in the context actually of idolatry that the Lord spoke to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. And really all these things that Paul's talking about here are kind of wrapped up, summarized in just these couple of verses. Paul says to the Israelites, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God is kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. God is a jealous God, and He demands our full-hearted devotion. Perhaps in the past, and, and perhaps even still, you have assumed that religious pluralism is the modern, enlightened, reasonable way to think about religion and worship. My friends, I hope you see this morning as we've walked through this passage that first of all, that is clearly not what the Bible teaches. That secondly, such a position is inconsistent with logic and reason. That it's impossible for all these various world religions to be true when they make diametrically opposed claims about God and reality and salvation. And I hope that you have seen as well that such a position is not worthy of the redemptive and sacrificial love of Jesus. Who gave Himself, who sacrificed His body, who shed His blood, who gave Himself completely to purchase for Himself a bride. A bride who had been forgiven and washed and made clean. And not a bride who had a wandering eye or an adulterous heart or who casually gave herself to other gods. But he gave himself and gave himself completely to purchase a bride who would be devoted to him fully. Who would love him completely. Who would treasure him and his sacrifice and the relationship that he had purchased by his blood. Friends, that's the type of relationship that Christ calls us to. And because He is a jealous God, He will not tolerate any other type of relationship. He is Savior. He is Lord. Or He is nothing. He demands our absolute allegiance. As we are going to be taking communion here in just a moment, one of the things that I hope that we will think about this morning as we take communion is that this is an opportunity to commit ourselves again to Christ. To wed ourselves to Him in full devotion. And as we take this morning to confess that He is our only hope, our only love, our only devotion. As we sit at this table, as we take this meal, we profess that we will not sit at the table of any other God but that Christ is our only hope of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love that is fierce and jealous, that pursues us with passion. And Father, we thank You for how that's so clearly represented in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus that He did not carelessly or half-heartedly pursue our redemption and salvation, but He gave Himself completely. Offering His body and His blood and ultimately His life for our redemption. 
Father, help us to prize what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that our response would be absolute allegiance and devotion and trust and worship. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who, like the Corinthians, when Paul was writing them, may have been struggling for some time with faith in Christ and what it means to follow Him. Lord, I pray that even this morning they would hear the undeniable call of Jesus and commit themselves fully to Him. And Lord, I pray for us as Christians, even as the Corinthians were professing believers, Lord, but but playing around with, with paganism and idolatry. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that, Lord, You would forgive us, Lord, where our hearts are divided. Lord, we pray even now as we take the bread and the cup that we would commit ourselves to you again. And we thank you then in committing ourselves to you that there's forgiveness, there's redemption. Even as we take the bread and the cup, we don't, we don't take it saying we, we've, we're fully aligned to you. We, we never wander, we never stray. We take the bread and the cup because we do stray. And we thank you that in your broken body and in your shed blood, there is forgiveness again. Again, there's redemption. Again, there's life. Again, there's salvation. Help us, Lord, to receive this time now to commune with you and with one another, to profess our faith and allegiance to you. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.